Blog Talk Radio. Hi, good evening, and welcome once again to Madam Perry's Salon, the podcast that loves you. I am your hostess, your groove mistress, and cruise director, Madam Perry, but you can call me Jen, Jennifer, J.P. Perry. I'm just happy to be here with you. Thank you to everyone who's been subscribing on different uh, podcast platforms and the people who have been leaving me nice reviews on Stitcher and on Apple iTunes. I really appreciate that. I want to know what you like and, and what you want to hear more of. And one of the things you tell me often on there, and, uh, and, and this is important to me, uh, people have said they like the fact that some guests are people they have heard of. They may be a well-known author or an actor, maybe somebody from Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries or an 80s rocker or an author they, they uh, like, or sometimes it's people they don't know who also fit in those categories, or maybe an anthrozoologist or a historian or a NASA JPL expert. It doesn't matter. You say that you like them all. You like people you know and learning things from people that you don't know. And I appreciate the feedback on that because, yeah, it's a good, fun mix. And I've been very, very fortunate to have such a variety of people. Also, uh, someone messaged me again and asked who are the winners of the books from poet Julie E. Blumicky and also from uh, crime thriller author Matt Coyle. Uh, well, I have an airship captain, Captain Anthony LaGrange, also known as Tony Ballard Smoot, and he's going to draw the winners in his costume with the background, the whole thing. Apparently it's the same one he uses, uh, the background and costume he uses for meetings <laughs> for uh, Zoom meetings with his uh, corporate job at a bank. So although I know him from the steampunk world and got to meet him last year. So anyway, he's been busy, but as soon as Tony gets uh, does the drawing for the winners, I will have those for you. Also later, you might have heard last week and last night, I had a promo for a Kickstarter for a vegan belt called uh, Belt of Orion invented by a woman in Canada. And I have a short interview with her. I'll be playing that later in the show. Also, another promo from Mosiane Petit Jackson. And she has a book called Thriller, Betrayal. It's a three-part series all about her life growing up as, she said, as the first or the oldest daughter of King of Pop, Michael Jackson. So I'll be playing... Um, that later on too before the end of the show but now this is going to be so much fun uh many of you people already know tonight's guest and i I love people that have such a varied uh, background and uh, experiences it's very exciting this man I, i don't know where to start except that he's a former professional baseball player we're going to ask about that current forensic scientist way cool an endurance athlete, 
author and screenwriter. So we're going to be talking about his books, but we're also going to find out, we're going to see what we, all we can find out about the very fascinating and obviously very intelligent and talented Greg Hickey. Welcome to Madam Perry Salon, Greg. Get comfortable. Thank you very much, Jennifer. That was quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Endurance athlete. You know, i got to ask you, pistol squats, what's your high number? Yes. Oh, I don't know. I've never tried to go for a record of pistol squats. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I did I did CrossFit for about a year, and we had to do those on a on a truck tire. Yeah, I have done them. They're tough for me because I'm not that flexible, so getting down that low is, is a little is a little tough. But um, I do the, do them occasionally, but I don't, I've never tried to go for a consecutive record. <laughs> okay, yeah, and that's an easy thing too. To wherever you are, whether you're in a chair or whatever, uh, pretty much anywhere you are, you can do that. So yeah, that's one of my favorites. Um, but well, at former international base professional baseball player, where have you played? Um, what team? In Sweden, in Sweden and South Africa. So when I was in college, I did a study abroad program a semester in Cape Town, South Africa. And I played baseball in college and was in South Africa. I was um, at the gym at the University of Cape Town. I would go early in the morning before classes, and I would, you know, either lift weights or um, do some baseball drills in, in the gym. And one day I was there, and another student, I guess, saw me come in and come into the weight room and put my glove in the ball in one of the cubbies in the weight room. And he came up to me, you know, during my workout and said, introduced himself and said he played on a local baseball team and asked me if I would be interested in, in playing with them. So I played with this team, the Crusaders, um, in, a, in a suburb of Cape Town uh, for the time I was there, which was about four months. Um, so got me through about two months of their season. Um, and I went back home to the States, you know, finished my degree. Um, when I was a to graduate, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do next, and it was very fortunate that my college baseball coach had played and coached overseas and continued to do so even, you know, when I was in college. He would play and coach during the summers in, in Sweden and around Europe. So he had a contact with a team in Sweden that was looking for a, a player and coach for the summer. So he asked me if I'd be interested, and I jumped at the opportunity. So probably a, a couple of weeks after I graduated from college, I was on a plane to Sweden, and then landed in Stockholm and took a train up north to a small town called Sundsvall. So I spent the summer there um, playing and coaching for a local baseball team. Uh, so I played and coached with the adult team and I coached the under-16 team. Um, after I finished there, I decided I would like to go back to South Africa and, and play a full season with the Crusaders, um, the team I had, had played a short season with earlier. So I um, went home to Chicago for about a month and then to South Africa um, and spent about six months in South Africa playing a full season there. That's fantastic. What I like about that is that you said when you had the first offer that, you know, you jumped at the chance because so, t- so many times people will say, well, I don't know. Well, what about this? And will I miss out on something else? But some of these kind of opportunities, they, they don't just come along for everyone and they sh- generally don't come along a second time if, if you turn it down the first time. So was it, did you just have an adventurous spirit or, or since you did the study abroad, 
you, you obviously already like travel cultures and places. Right. Yeah. And I was very lucky to grow up with a family that traveled a lot. So I really enjoyed traveling and enjoyed seeing other places and other cultures. Um, when I did my study abroad program, I really wanted to go somewhere that was different than the United States. And so, you know, my options for an English speaking curriculum are really limited to um, somewhere in the UK or South Africa. Um, so South Africa seemed like a really fascinating place to visit given their recent history and the diversity of culture. Um, that was definitely true. I really, really enjoyed my time in South Africa and I really loved the city of Cape Town. Um, so I really, you know, didn't think twice about going to Sweden after, you know, when my coach gave me that opportunity, uh, an opportunity that I was very lucky to have, something mm-hmm. kind of, I really never expected to, to get into when I started playing baseball as a young kid, uh, but, you know, really lucky that that came up for me and it was another great experience. That is fantastic. And yes, it's, it's an irreplaceable experience, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, my husband uh, traveled for years with his job around the country where he'd be as a place to be several times in Africa, Vietnam, England, uh, Germany, Australia, all sorts of places. And, you know, he said, I never dreamed growing up that I'd get to see these places that I'd seen in movies or in mm-hmm. books, you know, and then he's loved it. And he's kept a lot of friends. Do you still communicate with a lot of people from um, the Crusaders? Occasionally, yeah. More from South Africa than from Sweden, I would say. Um, I think just because I went to South Africa twice, and the second time I was there, I stayed with a host family, so I got to be pretty close to them. Um, my wife and I were got the chance to go back to Africa and to visit Cape Town uh, a couple of years ago now. We got to see my host family again, sort of reconnect with them, which was really nice. Oh, that's nice. That's great. Your wife got to go and meet other people, meet people that you knew. Yeah, so it was, it was definitely better. very exciting for me to. Yeah, it was exciting for me to take her back and show her around the, the city and introduce her to my friends and you know people I spent a lot of time with there. I would imagine too that feeds a lot into your work. But you started writing, um, as I understand, or from your blog actually, or from your website, you started your first novel after seventh grade, the summer after seventh grade. Yes, uh, start, I guess I could say it started it, and it didn't get very far. Uh, <laughs> so when I was in seventh grade, I you know, was assigned at some point to write a short story for class, or multiple short stories, but there was one that I especially liked, and I think you know, my teacher enjoyed it, and I don't know if I brought it to the class or she brought it to the class, but I think some of my classmates gave me some good feedback about it. And it was a story about a cruise ship that was shipwrecked on a deserted island, it's kind of like a Lord of the Flies situation where the, the passengers, the surviving passengers and the cruise ship had to figure out how to survive there and, you know, get into disagreements and whatnot. Um, but I enjoyed the experience of writing the story, so I decided that the summer after seventh grade, I was going to spend that summer turning the story into a full novel. Um, so, I, you know, I had great intentions, but I quickly realized that I much preferred being outside with my friends rather than you know, sitting alone in my family's basement working on a, a, a novel. <laughs> well, may, maybe you'll revisit it one day because I can see where a book or, or especially a, a, a film of this story, if it's a shipwrecked cruise liner, you won't have to explain as we did, as we always wondered with Gilligan's Island, if it was three-hour cruise, how did they have so many clothes? But you got a cruise liner <laughs> there. People got dinner wear. They got daytime clothes. They got sweat. Yeah. So it'd be, 
Yeah. 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 A lot more believable. So, um, so when did you get started? When did you really begin to write seriously? Um, I would say really a little bit in college, but mostly the summer after I graduated from college. So I was in Sweden, um, playing coaching for this local team. And my responsibilities for that team were really limited to coaching and participating in the adult practice, which is probably two nights a week, um, playing coaching the adult games. So we have, usually have two games on a Saturday or a Sunday. And then I would maybe coach one of the younger team's practices a week and then occasionally have a game with them on the weekend or a tournament with them on the weekend. So I really had a lot of time during the week, during the days in the week, where I could, where I was pretty much left to my own devices, and I used a lot of that time to start writing my first novel. Um, and the same was true when I was in South Africa. Um, I had a part-time job for a while, or really a temporary job for a little bit. So I was working eight-hour days, but then that, that um, assignment ended. Um, so I, had, again, had some time for myself to continue writing the novel. And by the time I came home to Chicago, uh, after about 10 months, I had the first draft of what would become my first novel. All right. And that was Our Dried Voices? Correct. All right. Oh, um, then tell us about, for people who aren't familiar with your work, would you tell us about Our Dried Voices? Absolutely. Because so Our Dried Voices... Published, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Because this was, this was uh, a finalist, I understand, for the Forward Review's Indie Science Fiction Book of the Year that year. In 2014? Yes, it was. Uh, yeah. Um, right. so I'm very excited and pleased with that, with that recognition, um, especially for my first novel. So it was definitely very gratifying. Um, but Our Dread Voices is a dystopian fiction novel. It's about a future human colony on a distant planet. And the story is set um, in the future when humans have basically cured all diseases and have solved the problem of, of feeding large populations and been able to figure out how to control the climate and, and uh, technologies like that. So the humans in this colony on a distant planet have basically set up everything so that the colony takes care of the humans and they don't have to worry about sustaining their own lives. So there are machines that make food and feed the colonists. Um, there are machines that clean every, all the buildings in the colony. And the colonists are basically these blissfully ignorant people who kind of spend their day playing on these meadows and then, you know, go to the meal halls when it's time to eat, go to the sleeping halls when, when it gets dark and it's time to go to bed. And they don't really have to think about all the mechanisms behind their existence. So everything goes along very smoothly for the colonists until the machines in the colony start breaking down. And then the colonists, and especially one colonist in particular who's the protagonist of the story, has to figure out, how to solve the problem to figure out what's going on with the colony and, and try to rescue everybody who's living there. Oh my. Okay. I was going to say, it almost sounds like, like the Jetsons, but gone sideways <laughs> because, yeah. they have, because they didn't have jobs there. So, uh, well, okay. All right. And uh, so to get the, to be a finalist for the forward reviews in the sci-fi book of the year, then, um, your first novel out, yeah, like you said, that had to. I'm sure it was quite gratifying and exciting, not only for you but for your friends and your family, reading this too. Yeah, I was, you know, my friends and family have been great, you know, really supportive, um, especially my parents and my wife. You know, um, I, it's a lonely profession 
at times being a novelist because you're stuck in front of a computer a lot. And so um, my wife and my schedule works out nicely in that by the end of the week, my wife who gets up very early to go to work every day um, is usually pretty tired on Friday nights. So she goes to bed early and I'm able to stay up late and kind of gather everything I've read during the week during my breaks at work. And um, occasionally I get time on weeknights and I'm able to take all that work on a Friday night and kind of start compiling it and putting it into whatever draft I'm working on. So does does your wife read? Act. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Does definitely. your wife ever read your work, and, and do you ever ask her to critique it or see how things flow? Yes, all the time. Um, she is, I think for all of my novels, she's been the last person I've asked to read a book before it gets published because she's a very careful reader, and she's able to pick out any lingering typos or other errors that I've missed, or even that editors have missed along the way. So she's the last person I want to see before, before it's ready for publication, just to make sure that everything is as, as good as it can be. All right, that's nice. Before, but before you wrote Our Dried Voices, um, and I believe it was when you were still in college, it was when you wrote your first screenplay, Vita. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. So and I, of course, I was going to say, if you, and like no your first novel, Vita went on to, and this was your first screenplay. Um, you're still in college, and Vita also won an honorable mention at the 2010 Los Angeles Movie Awards script competition and was a finalist in the 2011 Sacramento International Film Festival. And those are not slack awards, <laughs> those are pretty prestigious. Okay, here. Congratulations. Yeah, so thank you very much. And so, um, again, those, it's definitely, you know, exciting and an honor to get that recognition. Um, the tough thing about a screenplay is that it takes a lot of people to, to get off the ground and turn into a movie. So um, even though I had, you know, some recognition with, the, with that script, uh, nothing's really come of it. It was optioned at one point, which means that a producer has agreed with the producer that the producer has the right to make it into a film for whatever term period you set. And so I think it was a one-year option. Um, and then if it, nothing happens in that one year, then open, open game again. Uh, but nothing happened with it in that year. Really nothing's happened with it since. So, so far that's my first and only screenplay. Um, I've enjoyed writing novels up to this point and all the ideas I've had lately seem to lend themselves more to, to prose rather than a screenplay. So, that's the direction I've gone since then. Now, The Friar's Lantern, that's your most recent book? Yes. Okay. And so I've listened to some interviews you've done about that. So I'm going to ask you, what, first of all, how did you come up with the idea? What is the story about, and how did, you, how did that idea come to you? Sure. So The Friar's Lantern is told as an interactive novel. Um, Readers who are familiar with the Choose Your Own Adventure series that was popular in the 80s and 90s will recognize this style. Uh, but basically, the reader is the protagonist in the story. So the story is told in the second person, which means that the text is written as you do this, you do that. And at various points in the story, the text will say, okay, if you want to do X, turn to page 5. If you want to do Y, turn to page 10 or something like that. So the reader actually gets to choose how the story continues. Um, I thought this was a cool idea, and I, I enjoyed reading the 
Choose Your Adventure series when I was growing up and, and related books that were doing uh, interactive style. So I was in college and I remember I had the idea to try to update this style for a more adult audience. Um, I later realized that I was not the first person to come up with this idea. There are several other writers who have written interactive novels for adults. But that was a cool idea and I wanted to it took me a while to find the story idea that would fit with the style. Um, and I hit on the idea a couple of years later of making a choose your own path novel, uh, tell a story and start to explore the idea of choice. So in philosophical terms, it's about free will versus determinism, where free will is the idea that we consciously deliberate among various options and then actively select which option we want to pursue. So if I'm presented with the choice between chocolate and vanilla ice cream, I deliberate, I think about my taste preferences, and I decide, okay, I like chocolate better. I, I want to choose chocolate. Um, it's possible that I could have chosen vanilla if I felt like it on that day or something, but I actively decided to choose chocolate. The option is determinism, which says mm-hmm. that actually we don't really choose at all. Our actions are dictated by causal forces, whether that's in our upbringing, our genetics, um, the circumstances, our environment at the time, and so forth. So when I'm presented with chocolate and vanilla ice cream, it's not some part of my brain that's consciously deliberating and selecting what ice cream flavor I want, but it's my genetics. You know, my taste buds are more attuned to a bitter flavor like chocolate rather than a sweeter flavor like vanilla. And so I choose chocolate because that's the way my body works. Well, yeah, um, I've heard you say, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> I've also heard you say that, you know, um, younger audiences are more accustomed to choose your own adventure, you know, choose your own outcome novel. Um, I've only introduced to one and that was um at a book expo a book expo america years ago when uh neil patrick harris who wrote his uh, autobiography that way so how it could be an autobiography where you choose the adventure you know i didn't get that far into it but but i had not but i didn't realize you know as you said that's what younger audiences are more accustomed to so how difficult is that to to create the story in that way so it's not just a straight linear path or is it and but just different lines no uh it definitely presents some unique challenges so one of the differences between the friar's lantern and the old choose your own adventure series is that most readers of the friar's lantern will get through to the end of the story so there aren't points in the story where you're going to die or the story will just end because you run to some you know contrived dead end you're going to get through to the end of the story and you're going to make you know, the big decisions at the end of the story. Um, But as far as structuring the novel, there are still, you know, branching paths throughout the story that diverge and then intersect again. And so that was a a unique challenge. Um, And there were two things that really helped me kind of keep the story straight, both in terms of planning it and then executing the writing. So the first thing I did was try to draw out a map of how the story would go. So I, you know, had a blank sheet of paper, started at the top of page, with one line, you know, the initial setup of the story that broke into two lines. Okay, you follow this path, or you follow path, path A or path B, and then each of those two lines broke into two more lines, and so forth, all the way down the page. 
And it looked really neat at the top of the page, but by the time I got to the bottom, the lines were crisscrossing and swirling all over the place and intersecting and diverging again. Um, so it didn't look very neat. It certainly wasn't a work of art, but at least it helped me visualize how I wanted the story to go. And it was kind of a, a visual outline for what I wanted to include in the story and where I wanted to, wanted to include it. Um, so that was, that was the first thing that really helped me. Uh, the this second thing was... Yeah. So I, you know, I've shown them that story map to some people and I don't know if they appreciate it or not. I mean, it looks like a mess, but for me, at least I could kind of decipher it and I could figure out, okay, here's, you know, where I need to put this part of the story and where it comes in sequence and what patch path it branches off of and where it either ends or merges back into the the main storyline. The second thing I did was, I knew it was going to be a problem dealing with page numbers. So if I were to say in my first draft, turn to page five, and then I were to you know, add three pages in front of page five, then suddenly it would be page eight, and I would, you know, in the next draft to delete a page, and then it would be page seven. I didn't want to have to be constantly changing the page numbers every time I made a major edge to the story. So I would label each story section with a three-letter code, like AAA, BBB, and so forth. And then when I would make a choice, instead of saying, you know, turn to page five, it would say turn to page AAA. And then I would, it would be easy to, for me to find each section within the document just by doing a, a search, and, search function in Microsoft Word. And I wouldn't have to worry about changing all the page numbers every time I made a revision. And then when the book went to publication, it was pretty easy just to go back in and say, okay, page AAA refers to page five, so we're going to put five in there. Page BBB refers to page 10, so let's put 10 in there and so forth. All right. Yeah, I think you would have to be a scientist to put that together like that. I can't imagine <laughs> doing it. I just see, I just see, just from my computer science classes, the sets of algorithms, you know, if this, then this, you know, then it goes here and there, and uh, putting that together. Uh, what is the significance of the title, The Friar's Lantern? So the term Friar's Lantern is a synonym of the term will-o'-the-wisp or ignis fatuus, which is the Latin word for foolish fire. And all these terms refer to the ghostly light that is sometimes seen at night over marshy ground. And this light results from the oxidation of gases, gases produced by the decomposition of organic material. So it's this sort of flickering ghostly light, you know, that can appear in sort of unsafe ground. And in folklore, um, people would warn against the Friar's Lantern and the Will of the Wisp because if travelers were to follow the scope through light, they could stumble onto unsafe ground or unstable ground. So in the novel, The Friar's Lantern, the title refers to this ghostly light, but it also serves as a warning um, for readers that, you know, readers are on this path through the story and they get to choose where they go in the story. So it's sort of a warning to the readers to, you know, try to stay on the safe path or the true path and not be deceived by um, these false ideas that pop up throughout the book. Interesting. Um, what, there's something on this page, though. It says uh, on the page of your website where it says, the Friar's Lantern, um, you may win a million dollars. You will judge a man of murder. Yes, so those... Now, that, that's a pretty the, bold two sentences, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
Yeah, so those sentences refer to the two main plot lines in the story. So at the outset of the story, you, the protagonist, um, go to a laboratory where you decide to participate in a research experiment. And the experiment is about predicting human behavior. So this scientist puts you into an MRI machine that scans your brain, and you're presented with this choice. Um, basically, you're going to have two boxes, and you'll get to choose either one box or both boxes. And there's some terms of the choice that kind of play in. But basically, the MRI is trying to predict what you're going to choose. And depending on what you choose and what the MRI predicts, um, you could end up with a million dollars or more in winning. Um, so it could be very lucrative, or you could end up with nothing. So the, the second story path is you are called to jury duty, um, and you are assigned to be a juror on this murder case. Um, and the case is about a university professor who is accused of killing a man that he believes murdered his wife. So you sit on this trial and you go through all the evidence and at the end of the story, you have to decide is this man guilt, uh, innocent or guilty of murder. Well, and what kind of reactions have you got from your readers about it? I mean, I could read reviews, but what do your readers tell you without giving anything away? Sure. So um, my goal has really always been to try to write entertaining stories for smart readers. And I think with The Fire's Lantern, that's really the, re- the reaction I've got. So a lot of readers have said, you know, it's entertaining, but it makes you think. You know, it's, it's fun, but it's challenging. It's um, thought-provoking, but it's uh, enjoyable and relatively fast-paced read. Um, so I, that's definitely good to hear. It makes me feel like I'm on the right track and I kind of, for the most part, hit the mark with enough. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I know you haven't done it lately, but I see a lot of pictures where you you seem to uh, get out a lot and, and read and, and do in-person book readings and signings and so forth. Um, how do you like that? And what do you do now that, that you're not getting out as much or we can't get out to do that yet? Um, I do always enjoy doing those. Um, I've done them for the launches for both my books, for our drive voices and the fire lantern. Um, like you mentioned, I, you know, I haven't done one for a while. Um, both because I haven't released the book for a while. And also because, you know, we're all under stay at home orders and a lot of books are not open. Um, in the past I have done an online virtual reading and signing and Q and a, um, I think I would like to do that again. Uh, I've got a novel coming out in October, so the plan right now is to do a few of those, um, which is nice because I have, you know, readers that are don't live in Chicago where I live and can't come to a in-person book signing. So hopefully that's an opportunity for them to be able to connect with me and ask a little bit more about the book and find out about a little more about me and the way I write and the stories I'm trying to tell. But, um so, and, and pardon me if I've missed this, but um, have you done much online reading to, like, on, uh, like where people can interact with you or leave comments, like on, on Facebook or Zoom or something? I've only done one before. Um, I've put out a short prequel to The Friars Lantern a, a couple years ago, uh, actually, no, early last year. And I set up a video on my website. So it was, it was hosted on my website, but I you know, did it through YouTube. 
Um, so it's basically just, yeah, I would write a little bit from the book. I took questions from the audience. Or, you know, I had a chat box on the website where they could type in questions. I would answer them on the video. Um, um, you know, had the opportunity for them to purchase books and have me sign them live on, on video. Um, so it was a lot of fun. I, you know, I really enjoyed that opportunity to be able to connect with my readers, um, especially readers who don't live in the same city or state as I do. Yeah, that's a um, <laughs> that's an interesting thing to to uh, you know we're having to change so many things now. And since I'm an entertainment publicist, you know I've had people come to me and I was um, saying, okay, now what do we do? You know, now you can't because I've always been one of one of my fortes is what I call the unconventional book tour. So if I have if my clients are authors, I'll put them in places like I put them in wellness centers wine bars, art galleries, coffee shops, just all kinds of unusual places where, I mean, you know, people, you don't have to be in a bookstore to be needing a book. And there's a, um, a guy, Charlie Wilson, if you've ever heard of, uh, could be a little before your time, but a funk band called the Gap Band. And Charlie's the drummer. Okay, well, Charlie Wilson, the drummer for the band, singer, songwriter, he still tours on his own. And um, believe me, a lot of people have heard of him because I'd love to see him, but I can't afford the $150 ticket. But he wrote a book, about a memoir, and he had a book signing at, would you believe, the DMV. <laughs> and I thought, oh, man, I would love to do that. I'd love to put a client there or at a place where you get your tires, you know, a new set of tires because there are people mm-hmm. just bored and people gosh knows people at the DMV you know if you're there for a while you want something to read something different uh, sure. so, so what, what is the uh, have you have you ever done sort of an unusual unconventional uh, situation like that where you've gone to read or sign your book and something outside a bookstore no I've only ever done bookstores but this is a great new idea um so when you do this, do you pick a place that kind of ties in with the author's book? So if your author's writing about food or wine, will you choose a wine bar or restaurant versus if your, coffee, if your author's writing about uh, uh, health and wellness center? Yeah, actually, yes, I have because, well, the wellness center, that was a girl who, a woman who hired me who put her book out and all of a sudden it's Thanksgiving and she goes, Hey, my book's already out. What can you do? And I'm going, okay, you know, we're going into Christmas. You know, everybody's already been booked since June for this. So, you know, I had to pull something out. I had to pull a rabbit out of the hat. So for that, I thought, well, let's see Christmas. um, I put her in a wine bar locally because that way my press release can say, take a load off, have a seat, have another glass of, have another margarita or a glass of wine. And I had the client, um, prepared to go ahead and gift wrap her books, you know, have the paper cut to the right size, and her sisters with her, so they would autograph and gift wrap books. That way, you can mark some names off your list, relax a little bit, and that's how yeah. I promoted that. With another client, though, her book was a dystopian novel set in the future, and because people had to make do with what they already had and repurpose furniture, there were no more factories and no new things coming out. But people had to use what they had or trade it or sell it and, and reuse. Um, I found a, uh, what do you call it? Not exactly an antique store, but they would resell like, you know, things, uh, mid-century modern decor or 
photographs or paintings or furniture, clothes, jewelry, everything. And so I told them, I told the guys, I said, you know, we're not a bookstore, right? And I said, yes, but in the book, they have to use what they have. And everything you have is, you know, resale, um, kind of upscale flea market stuff or regular flea market. So that's where the tie-in is. And they oh, kind of... Great. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and so it was the two owners. One of them says, "Well, I can't believe you sold us on this because you talked to my husband, and he doesn't even read, but I do. So, yeah, so we went ahead and did it. It was a lot of fun, you know. And they brought in new people, and and they they we made it work. So yeah, things like that. So that's where I was wondering, you know, now that you're thinking about that, or now that we've talked about it. Where would you like to have something that would be different? I mean, for gosh oh. sakes, a gym, a gym, because you're an endurance athlete. Those guys got to read yeah, sometimes. Mm-hmm. Gym would be good. I'm trying to think. So my next novel, and I don't, maybe this would not be a good idea, but my next novel is about a, a mass shooting incident at a beach in Chicago. So I don't know if we'd want to do a beach or if the subject matter would be too grim for a day at the beach. Um, we could, you know, mm-hmm. set up a little tent on the beach, something like that. But I don't know. I'll, now I'll have to really think about that. Yeah, do, do. If you need some help, give me a call. That would be a good place to okay. do it. Or this client also, her sister was a musician, so she sat in with this jazz band at a club, and they let the girls sell her, or the woman sell her books there too. So I know there's a lot of jazz places in Chicago because I've got a good friend, Paul Marinero, that performs at a lot of them there. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we could put you We could put you anywhere, Greg, for Pete. <laughs> Everybody would love you. Tell me about some of your other books that were – have you ever had a book or story you've written that ended up being kind of a surprise to you? Like you start off with an idea, maybe a concept, a plot, and it goes to a surprising place. Um, usually not. I'm, writers kind of describe themselves as planners and pantsers, um, the latter being people who, who write from the seat of their pants, uh, fly by the seat of their pants. And I'm more of a planner. So Our Dread Voices and the, the Fires when I turned were both very much planned out in advance and, and pretty painstaking detail. Um, the novel I'm working right, on right now, which is going to come out in the fall, uh, is called Parabellum, was a little bit more of that, you know, fly by the seat of my pants approach. So I kind of had an idea of, I had an idea of how I wanted the story to start and I had a, kind of had an idea of how I wanted to end. But the way I ended up writing it was I would, focus on one character and I would just write scenes for that character as they came to me. And there are four main characters in the story. So it's, you know, we do one character, write several scenes over the course of a few weeks, um, then move on to the next character and write a bunch of scenes. So really when I wrote the rough draft, I didn't have a cohesive draft so much as, you know, 40 odd scenes. Um, so I didn't have to go back in store and put it in a chronological order, more or less chronological order. Um, so the whole process of actually getting from first draft to second draft was actually figuring out, okay, here's how the story's actually going to progress. And here are some gaps in the story where I need to write additional scenes or here's a scene that doesn't really fit that I need to delete altogether. So that was a little bit more of a, I'm not quite sure where the middle of this story is going to go and how I'm going to get from beginning to end is more figuring it out as it went along and sort of, you know, having these characters in mind and trying to write 
in a way that was true to the characters and felt like it was something that the characters would do and choices the characters would make and letting their personality sort of dictate how the story went. Well, we're looking forward to Parabellum, and you say it's going to be published in October? Yes. All right. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it. All of your books have great covers, but looking at the cover, since you do give us a sneak peek at it, the, or a preview, the cover for Parabellum, gorgeous, but... Yes, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I think the designer did a great job, so I'm, I'm very pleased with how that turned out. Yeah, it's got a bit of a th- almost almost a 3D effect where you look like you're peeking into uh, into the story just for mm-hmm. the cover, and yeah, I like absolutely. that. You've got the uh, the colors for the beach, but then the uh, peek into the city. So, yeah, okay, we'll definitely, and I, and I hope you will come back for that. Uh, oh, I'd love to. Other, okay, good. Please, wait. We got it here. I've got it on. I've got it on tape. <laughs> um, <laughs> You also have a book called Theory of Anything. And uh, so while I've got a few more minutes with you, will you tell me what that's about? Absolutely. So I, I touched on this briefly earlier. Um, it is a short prequel to The Friar's Lantern. Um, so when I was talking about The Friar's Lantern, I mentioned this university professor who was accused of killing a man that he believes murdered his wife. Well, Theory of Anything kind of goes into the circumstances of how the professor was arrested and what led to his alleged, and it's a story about his relationship with his wife and um, what happened after her death and him grieving and also making this breakthrough mathematical discovery at the same time. And so I published it as a prequel to The Friar's Lantern, and it's intended to be an introduction for readers who are new to my writing. So it's available for free on my website. Um, Readers go to my website and search for the theory of anything. It should be easy to find. They can download it for free and get an introduction to my writing style and decide if they think it works for them if they want to continue on to the Friars Lantern. All right. And the website is greghickeywrites.com. And, of course, I'll Correct. be sharing that on all of my social media, not only for Madam Perry Salam, but also for Jennifer Perry on all of them, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I've seen it on some of those already, but as you know, I always keep sharing it because people always ask me. And also a lot of people listen to the podcast. They tell me when they're driving or when they're running or something, so they can't always write it down, but they know where to find it. Greg, I just wish you so much success. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and I'm so grateful that you uh, were so generous with your time tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation, so I appreciate you having me on the show. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. All right, folks, and after um, – I've also got the interview coming up with Rania, who created the Belt of Orion, and also Mosey and Petit Jackson. And uh, for right now, again, look for Greg Hickey, author, screenwriter. This man is fascinating, and uh, I can promise you from what I've read and from the interviews, and I haven't, I'm just about to start on Friars Lantern this weekend, but the parts that I've read so far, this is not your ordinary book. This is not one where you're going to know where it goes or say that you've I've read this plot before. This is something fresh, very exciting, and very entrancing. Um, he's an extraordinary word crafter. And thank you again, Greg Hickey. Uh, and remember, you've always got a home here at Madame Perry Salon. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I appreciate it. All right. Quite a pleasure. And now I've got a word from our friend, 
Charles Barkley, and I'll be back with Rainier. So, Chuck, talk to us about Fisdale being the Knicks' new coach. What's your uh, thoughts on that? Well, well, I'll I tell you right now, Ernie, it don't matter who's going to coach this team. They don't got no talent on they it. And I don't, I don't really feel I talk That's kind of harsh. I don't feel I talk about the Knicks right Do now. Do you want to talk about lunch? No. <laughs> what would you like to talk about, Chuck? See, Ernie, I've been listening to a podcast called Madame Perry Salon. And I think Jennifer Perry, she's a great host. I mean, she got all these bestseller authors, Rostar, Purdue, all the dip comedians. What about people you that could, don't have rings? Here we go again. I got Real funny, Chuck. Real funny. <laughs> but I think she's great. And I think people would love her show. She got a great laugh. She make the laugh come out of nowhere, like an eagle come in there and just steal the whole show. It's 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 a beautiful thing. It's not terrible. You know, um, my book, Thriller: The Dark Side of My Lens. I'm really um, talking for the first time about my kidnapping. I mean, many people think it's funny that I'm saying Michael Jackson is my father, but they are not realizing. Um, how much I've been traumatized um, because of that, how much I suffered because of that. You know, um, people have been murdered on the night I was kidnapped. I mean, the media laugh about it, but you know, I still uh, remember as an eight-year-old child that people are being killed in front of me um, in many ways, but I also remember walking in the blood so that my book called Thriller Betrayal and Thriller The Dark Side is no lens, not because I like the name Thriller, because a real thriller have been happening to me, and I'm happy I survive it still. So if you've been listening last week and you've been checking my social media, you see that I've been talking about a Kickstarter for a new product, very exciting, called the Belt Orion. It's a virtually indestructible belt. And tonight, I have the inventor, the creator of the Belt of Orion, here with us to talk about it. Renya, welcome to Madame Perry Salon. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So, Renya, tell us, what is Truth Belts? Truth Belts is the name of my company, uh, which I started back in 2001 here in Toronto, Canada. And I have been making and designing vegan fashion accessories. Um, ever since, and uh, the product is primarily belts, and everything is 100% animal-friendly and made in Canada. What is Belt of Orion? Well, the Belt of Orion is my latest creation, which I'm really excited about. It's a new virtually indestructible belt that um, is so strong, so anybody out there who typically destroys their belts would love it because it doesn't crack at the holes. It lasts a long time. It's, uh, it's nickel-free for anybody who has allergies to nickel. And um, it uh, doesn't have the gruesome energy of, of animals that have been abused because I think we're seeing more and more um, information today coming through that's you know, showing us that maybe animals aren't treated as, as we think they are as they go through the hmm. animal agriculture system. So in a nutshell, it's a really strong vegan belt for men that goes great with jeans. What is it made of that makes it so strong? Well, I discovered a secret from the Mennonites who were using this man-made material for their horses, reins, and harnesses because it's stronger than leather and it wouldn't crack 
over time appeared with the Canadian winters and all the seasons, you know, just, um, it, uh, it was just so long lasting, so durable. And once I discovered this, I thought, well, why don't I use this for a belt? Um, so that's the secret. And it's a material that is seatbelt webbing on the inside. So, you know, your seatbelt in your car. Okay, that's the inside. Mm-hmm. And then it's coated with a special vinyl um, that is, uh, it complies with North American standards for making vinyl. It's made in the United States. And they also use the same material in, you know, the military, health, and sporting industries. Um, so it's very, very durable. Why did you call it Belt of Orion? Well, you know, Belt of Orion is um, something that we all notice when we look up to the night sky. If you're into astronomy or you love gazing up, it's a, it's a, a star constellation, which is called the Belt of Orion. It's probably one of the most popular uh, star constellations, probably after the Big Dipper and the Little Dipper. Um, if you join the stars together for the Orion Star Constellation, it creates a stick figure of a person. And it kind of looks like he's holding like um, a bow or something. So historically, this stick figure in the sky has been seen as like a warrior or a hunter. But I decided to create my own story. And I, with my imagination, I just used, uh, you know, I had a little bit of fun. And I made this into an archer. So somebody holding a bow and arrow. And the story that I'm going with is that uh, she shoots this magical arrow to planet Earth to help us out and help us wake us up to the fact that we're all interconnected and that what happens in one part of the planet affects us all. So that's the story that I created. So I just kind of wanted to change it into being something a little bit more, you know, like negative and about, you know, war and killing into something more positive. Um, So that's why I called it Orion, and I've embossed the word Orion on the back of the belt, which makes that really cool. Is it only for the vegan and vegetarian market? Absolutely not. If you are a guy who typically destroys your belts, you would love this belt because it's not going to fall apart, you know, after like, you know, a year or two, like a lot of other belts out there. It's really for anybody who just wants a long-lasting belt, and he wears pants. <laughs> <laughs> you had a Vedic astrology reading recently and discovered that your chart is in Orion. Tell me about that. Yes, that was the really auspicious thing about this whole creation of this belt. So during the coronavirus lockdown, um, on May 6th, I had... Um, uh, my astrology chart done, Vedic astrology, which is different from Western astrology. And I'd never had that experience before. So, you know, I thought I would just try something new. So Mm -hmm. um, it was very accurate. And one of the questions that I asked during the interview was I just asked about this belt um, because I was feeling kind of unsure about what was happening in the world. And I wanted to find out if there would be a better time for me to launch this on Kickstarter. So while I was asking my question and describing my belt of Orion to um, the reader um, or to the astrologer, he was um, he stopped me mid-sentence and he said, by the way, you know that your chart is actually in Orion? And I was like, what? And he so said, cool. yes, you know, Ge- Gemini is your sign. But in fact, that part of Gemini where you're where your sun is, is in fact the star Betelgeuse, which is um, the shoulder star of Orion. So he said that my sun conjuncts the star Betelgeuse. So no kidding, Orion is prominent in your chart. And I was like, wow, that is very interesting. What does that even mean? 
And then he went on to tell me that my my Venus, um, so Venus is, you know, the, uh, another big planet that um, affects us. I guess the two main stars in your chart in Vedic astrology that influences you is your sun star and your Venus. So my Venus is a star called Lambda Orion, which is the actual head of Orion. So, you know, the shoulder and the head of Orion are in my personal chart. Oh, my. How did you feel when you heard that? I didn't know what to think. I just thought, I think this was meant to be because (laughs) I just felt, you know, really passionate about this belt. And um, I love looking at the stars. I don't even know what to make of it. But I can tell you that since this has happened, I have had four really unusual coincidences around Orion that have come up. The first one was when I hired you. Um, You know, I had um, just wanted to do a little bit of advertising for this Kickstarter campaign and about my cool belt. So Uh you all, you know, you coincidentally um, had my commercial play with um, with that man who is an astronomer. Um, What was his name? His name was um, sorry, I forgot his name right now. Thomas Watson. Yes, thank you. Who happens to be an author and an astronomer. So that was the first coincidence. So I, you know, I, you know, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. The next thing that happened was um, I had hired somebody to help me with um, writing an article. Um, so she, um, she did that for me because I'm not the greatest writer in the world. So, you know, I, I get help here and there. And she submitted the article to me. Um, and she told me that her real job, her full-time job is working for NASA as a laboratory mechanic and that she had just finished a long test a few months ago on Orion on the next spaceship for the Artemis program. So that was the second thing that happened. <laughs> oh, this is so I know. Wild. Okay. I know. There's two more. There's two more coincidences. The next thing that happened was I was here in Toronto and I was at Dora. We have a, like this health food store, they have organic um, groceries. And so there's um, a store right across the way. It's called Gifts from the Earth. And they sell um, like high quality mineral specimens, fossils, stones, telescopes. Um, so in the window, they had this framed beautiful photo of the Orion Star constellation. And they had focused on the three stars, which are Orion's belt. So that was the next thing. I just feel like I'm seeing it everywhere. The wow. last thing that happened was my dear friend um, who moved to Germany a few months ago, um, she sent me a photo and she had purchased a bottle of water from the store and the brand of the water, Orion. Oh. oh. Rinya, so often people wonder, am I going about this the right way? Do I have all my bases covered? Um, am I true to my purpose? You've invented a product that is durable, something everyone needs, and yeah. created so that animals don't have to be needlessly suffering because uh, someone needs a belt. And it seems that everywhere you turn, you've been getting positive reinforcement. And that is why I love this story so much. You know, I really do feel, yeah, you know what, I really do feel like I somehow have the wind in my back with all these, the force of coincidences that have come up. I just feel like the universe is just telling me something like, you know what, girl, you are on the right path. This is a wonderful product and go for it. Fantastic. This is an extraordinary product, and as people know, I have been and will continue to share the links to the Kickstarter for Belt of Orion on all of my social media. And, oh, 
check it out. Read more about it. Make a pledge. Get a belt. Who knows how change your life? So, um, <laughs> Rania, how is this belt changing the world? Well, you know what? I think that, um, you know, people are really starting to be more conscious about the way they eat. You know, the vegan and vegetarian movement has really grown in the past 10 years. So, you know, not, even if somebody is not um, willing to switch their diet to vegan or vegetarian, I think people are, are eating maybe less meat or they're being more conscious of, you know, where they purchase their meat. Um, so there, there are things that are really shifting. People are just becoming more conscious and they want to know where the food that they are buying, like where was it grown, how was it grown, and they're not willing to, mm. you know, put up with, like, you know, things that are not cool, like all the, you know, antibiotics that are pumped into, um, you know, not only meat, but like, you know, our, our fruits and vegetables, and we're becoming conscious mm-hmm. of that, and I think the citizens of the world are really starting to wake up and realize that they have a voice, and that we can make change um, by, you know, by taking action, so that's sort of the symbol of, uh, of the belt of Orion and with my story too, because, you know, um, just growing up, I always heard that the belt of Orion was this warrior in the sky and that's just what I was told. But then I was like, Hey, you know what? That doesn't feel right to me. I'm going to make my own story and I'm going to like put a new spin on it. So we can all do that in 2020. Like if we feel like we learned something growing up that doesn't fit us, it doesn't seem right. We can do something about it. So that's the message. Anyone who is interested in checking out the Belt of Orion Vegan Belt can go to Kickstarter and do a search for Belt of Orion or Truth Belts. And you can also find information on my social media for Madam Perry Salon as well as Jennifer Perry. Again, thank you so much, Renya, and we wish you all the success with Belt of Orion. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.